Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Den of Geek podcast featuring commentary on the latest news from denofgeek.com as well as other behind-the-scenes content from your favorite movies, TV shows, and more. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and this is Episode 9, the late edition of G News for May 2018, in which we'll be discussing a smattering of politically charged articles along with some TV news from Hulu and Amazon, among other things. Right, and we also have a really cool bonus item for you tonight. We have Alejandro Rojas, who recently started contributing to Den of Geek. He's a science writer elsewhere as well, but he's going to share with us a part of his interview with astronaut Scott Kelly, which is very exciting. I know, Dave, you have astronaut fandom in your blood as well. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I grew up around the space program. So, yeah, I love this stuff. So, yeah, science also goes along with science fiction and a lot of other (laughs) genre topics and otherwise that are covered on Den of Geek. So that'll go nicely with our podcast. But in the meantime, we've got a lot of Really cool stuff to talk about, and like Dave mentioned, politically charged in some cases, so it should be an interesting discussion for our news this week. All right, Mike, well, let's get started here, because as you well know, I have an intimate relationship with Ray Bradbury's 1951 novel, Fahrenheit 451, early dystopian view of technology's impact on society, and I'm sure a lot of listeners out there know Francois Truffaut's 1966 interpretation, which remains a classic on multiple levels, but since we live in the age of the remake and the reboot, it should come as no surprise that Bradbury's dire warning should receive a refresh, this time at the guiding hand of Ramin Barani and HBO. And this was one of the first novels you taught. Is that what you mean by intimate relationship? With the novel? <laughs> well, not necessarily one of the first, but certainly I've probably taught it easily 15 to 20 times. <laughs> now, in many respects, Barani's radically reimagined adaptation of Fahrenheit is going to rub some science fiction purists the wrong way since he chooses to leave out some rather critical details, including protagonist Guy Montag's wife, Mildred. Yeah, I can't believe that. I I haven't seen it yet, but I can't believe they would leave out Mildred. (laughs) Well, it's it's funny. I started watching it tonight. I'm about 25 minutes in because I'm thinking, well, it's at the theater. I'm not going to see it till it's out on DVR. No, wait, it's HBO. (laughs) But The film also presents a bleak conclusion as opposed to the hopeful future Montag finds in the novel once he joins the book people. And in this politically charged world in which we currently find ourselves, viewers will likely either love or hate the not so subtle nods to President Donald Trump. Yeah, for sure. And it should be noted that Dave and I are on opposite ends of the political spectrum. So we have a fair and balanced view of all the topics we're talking about today. Absolutely. Now, if you somehow missed reading Bradbury's novel in high school, we find ourselves in a future world in which firemen start fires instead of putting them out. And whereas the novel had them burning only books, Barani has necessarily updated the fireman's job to include digital mediums as well. Oh, very cool. 
Yeah. Now, unlike the novel, though, some books remain available to the public, including Moby Dick, To the Lighthouse, and The Bible. And unlike the novel's Montag, firemen are now celebrities and the reality TV stars of their day. Yeah, I liked in the uh, promo when he's shooting books with his flamethrower in a very theatrical manner. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that occurs early in the movie. Now, I'm just cracking the surface of David Crow's review of this latest remake, and I urge you to check out this review of Ramin Barani's vision of Ray Bradbury's classic Fahrenheit 451 review, A Modern Dystopia for the Trump Era. Yes, a very interesting review, and the comments are hopping with some interesting debate down there. And that's also the case for the first article I want to bring up from denofgeek.com, and that is from Seamus Kelly, Is Lando Pansexual? <laughs> Which was obviously a headline that sprung out of an uh, article that's been making all the rounds, the, an interview with Huffington Post that the directors of the movie Solo gave. But, you know, it could be perhaps said that rather than movies, genre television has been at the forefront of LGBTQ plus representation with gay and bisexual characters in particular being featured in shows like Winona Earp, Westworld and The Hundred and elsewhere. But as soon as you start targeting a specific audience like that under the guise of representation, you start to walk a very fine line between pandering to that audience and a genuine desire to use your medium to change the industry. And I think that's what's going on here. And Seamus Kelly has picked up on it because Solo, which follows the early years of the snarky smuggler Han Solo when he first met up with his lifelong friends such as Chewbacca and Lando Calrissian. In this interview with the Huffington Post, director Lawrence Kasdan commented on, shall we say, the wider net cast by Lando, <laughs> a character who's known to be a bit of a flirt, at least with um, Billy D. Williams's portrayal in The Empire Strikes Back, but also Donald Glover supposedly portrays him the same way. So, you know, he flirted with Leia in Empire Strikes Back, but perhaps he could flirt with other creatures, humans, various genders. We're not quite sure because Kasdan said there's a fluidity to Donald and Billy Dee's portrayal of Lando's sexuality. He doesn't make any hard and fast rules. I think it's fun. I don't know where it will go. Well, you know, Mike, it, it takes me back to when Donald Glover was first named as the actor that was going to play Lando Calrissian and he said in the interview that almost immediately after the news broke he gets a call from his mother who told him he better not mess it up <laughs> yes this is a character that people see in a very specific way so it can be problematic for those who don't want him to be pansexual but for folks like Seamus Kelly who do want that to be true it's not enough for the director to just say it obliquely like that so the words that Seamus Kelly uses in his article are, this is incredibly frustrating, especially for queer Star Wars fans, because while it's nice that the writers of the film are saying Lando is pansexual, it means very little if we don't see it in the film. And I don't mean we should see Lando getting it on with a male Wookiee or something, <laughs> says Seamus, <laughs> but we need something more than a subtext filled look or a throwaway line. We need something more concrete. And I, I totally get where Seamus is coming from here, because there certainly could be two different views of whether Lando is pansexual and whether that should be even addressed in, in a star Wars movie. But if you're going to say it, you got to follow through on it. But as for Donald Glover, he acknowledged in a very tongue in cheek kind of way that there are plenty of attractive beings out there for Lando to flirt with. So let's take a listen to a follow-up interview that he had to address this issue. 
<laughs> How can you not be pansexual in space? There's so many things. <laughs> There's so many things to have sex with. <laughs> it's like, I'm like, he's like oh, kind of yeah. like a 70s swing. Yeah, I just, I, it just didn't seem that weird to me because I feel like if you're in space, <laughs> it's kind of like the door's open. It's like, he's like, no, only, only guys or girls. Like, kind of thing. He's like, no, it's anything. This, this thing is literally a blob. <laughs> All right. So kind of a humorous way to look at it. And I don't know if that... That uh, clip with Donald Glover would make Seamus Kelly happy or even more angry, <laughs> but it is an issue that the Kasdans broached, and now it's out there, so better put up or shut up. Yep. All right, well, let's go from the world of Star Wars to the world of Resident Evil, and it's been over 22 years since the original Resident Evil video game was released for the PlayStation platform and has since sold close to 9 million copies, but... As most people know, in the interim, the gaming industry has been irrevocably changed. Some would say for the better, some would say for the worse. Now, the days of purchasing physical media to pop into your PS4 or Xbox appear to be numbered, and Capcom in Japan is going to release what is currently being referred to as Resident Evil 7 Biohazard Cloud version. So, <laughs> Not very catchy, but okay. <laughs> Well, obviously, the cloud version label indicates that this is a streaming service for Sony's hybrid platform. But here's the catch. Clearly, this is meant to be a streaming title and gamers will be able to play for free, but only for 15 minutes before being prompted to sign up for a <laughs> subscription. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, see, I'm still a guy that I want to hold the game in my hand. I want to put it in the plastic case, have it on my shelf. I'm a dinosaur, though, I think, in that regard. <laughs> now, currently, you can get six months of play for around 18 U.S. dollars. It appears that gamers will be subjected to yet another unique pricing model, and whether or not Capcom's approach catches on remains to be seen, since most serious gamers are going to likely complete Resident Evil 7 in 10 hours or so, the pricing structure maybe doesn't seem so bad. Now, back to my original thought, do gamers care about actually owning a game that they can take out of its plastic case and play whenever they like for as long a time period as they like? Yeah, well, I think you're not wrong. I think people want that. It's just that the business model is no longer viable. So I think this is a very creative way that they've come up with. 18 bucks for six months of play, and maybe you're done with it at that point, or you want to pay another 18 bucks to get it for the remaining year. I mean, think about all the games that have started to gather dust once you've finished playing them. Yeah, well, at least they didn't use the M word, Mike. What's that? Microtransaction. <laughs> That's right. So for more on this story, check out Matthew Bird's Resident Evil 7 coming to Nintendo Switch as a streaming title. All right, looking forward to that. I remember the original Resident Evil game being played in my basement back in the day and, and uh, fond memories of that game. Well, uh, my second story is going to deal with Lord of the Rings, which is another thing that's near and dear to my heart, like a good little nerdling that I am. <laughs> and Joseph Baxter has an article about the Lord of the Rings Amazon TV show. Now, much to do was made of the quarter billion dollar deal that Amazon made to acquire the television rights for a Lord of the Rings series. But although production costs and casting might actually bring the price tag closer to a full billion, not much is actually known about what aspect of Tolkien's epic fantasy saga the series would adapt until now. And the headline that Joseph Baxter uses a very carefully worded Lord of the Rings Amazon TV show might focus on Aragorn. 
because the source for this next little bit is from the one ring.net, which is a long established fan site of Tolkien's work with its finger on the pulse of all things, Lord of the Rings. And it claims to have multiple sources confirming that the series will center around Aragorn, the character famously portrayed by Viggo Mortensen in director Peter Jackson's revered Oscar generating trilogy of films. Now, if you are not familiar with Aragorn, he comes from a paternal line that stems back to the ancient Kings of Gondor. And he was targeted very early by evil forces. And after his father, Arathorn II died when Aragorn was two, this child was sent to Rivendell, the land of the elves where he was raised by Elrond. And at some point he left that place to join his dwindling kin, the Dunedain, which is a race of humans with lifespans extending to 250 years or more. In fact, in Lord of the Rings, he's a very young looking 87 years old. He ages well, Dave, but that whole storyline could be explored in an Amazon TV series, even maybe perhaps exploring Arathorn and, and Aragorn's mother Gilrain in flashbacks, which I think would be kind of cool. And, you know, Aragorn's friendship with Gandalf predates the events of the Lord of the Rings. So that could be another story that they could explore as well, as well as his ranger companions. We might be able to see them there. They are there in the North to protect the borders of the Shire to kind of shelter the peaceful hobbits within. And so a prequel of sorts would be really fun. So I hope this rumor is true so that maybe we can see Strider, which is the name we first got from him in the Lord of the Rings trilogy to come again in a different form from a different perspective. Well, Mike, all I'm thinking here is billion dollars might focus. Dude, they better figure it out. (laughs) That's right. Well, they've got some time, but yeah, this is something that they're banking a lot on the success of this Lord of the Rings series as an idea for an ongoing story. So, you know, you got to be able to find something that you can milk. So I think this is a good place to start. Oh, no question. I mean, there, there's a huge fan base, and I, I think it'll do well. It's just don't mess it up. <laughs> so. All right. Now, for my third and final story of this podcast, I want you to picture this. You're a huge Joseph Heller fan who's devoured not only the novel, but the 1970 film adaptation multiple times. So it's no surprise that you're feeling somewhat elated upon learning that Catch-22 is going to be developed as a television series. But wait, there's a catch. You only have Netflix, and it's going to air on Hulu. (laughs) Now, maybe not a true Catch-22 situation, but you get the idea. (laughs) That's right. Well, Hulu is, you know, garnering a lot of attention with some of its original programming, so this could be good. Yep. Now, Heller's 1961 novel is going to be coming to Hulu in the form of a six-part miniseries directed by George Clooney, who's going to act in the project as well. Oh, wow. Okay. The story follows Captain John Yossarian as the World War II B-25 bombardier who copes with not only the danger inherent in the missions over enemy territory, but the often ridiculous expectations he sees almost everywhere he looks. Production began on May 21st in Sardinia, and Giancarlo Giannini will portray Marcello, the owner of a bordello in Rome, who's described as weathered and once handsome, but still debonair. Okay. Kyle Chandler has joined the Catch-22 cast as its co-star, set for the role of Colonel Cathcart, a role Clooney originally planned to play himself, but I guess the royal wedding took a lot out of George. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Kyle Chandler's a good choice, too, though. I like that. Oh, absolutely. 
Now, Cathcart's the commander who continues to increase the number of combat missions required before a soldier can return home. And the Catch-22 of the title refers to the fact that anyone who is crazy can't be cleared to fly a combat mission. But anyone who claims to be crazy in order to get out of flying these missions is showing a rational concern for their own well-being and thus cannot be crazy, so may continue to fly missions. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Hugh Laurie's also going to join the cast. What? And we know him. Oh, my God. Right? We know him as former TV Dr. House, and he will play the co-starring role of Major Ducoverly. I'm in. <laughs> now, now, Clooney's previously directed six films, including Good Night, Good Luck, and The Ides of March, but this is going to be his first television role since he left ER in the 1990s. So for a lot more on this story, check out Katie Burt and Joseph Baxter's piece, Catch-22 Hulu TV series, cast, details, and everything to know. Well, that's really cool. I, I like that lineup. And you and I tend to focus on genre television, but uh, every once in a while, one of them squeezes through. And in fact, my last story is about a show that has really captured my attention, and that is Killing Eve on BBC America. It's just this wonderful spy thriller about an assassin that I just love. And one aspect of it that Delia Harrington has enjoyed writing about with this show is its feminist perspective. So she's written a couple of articles. Killing Eve is the perfect show for the cultural moment. And also Killing Eve, a spy show from the female gaze. And I really love the way Delia Harrington puts the unique perspective that showrunner Phoebe Waller-Bridge brings to this wonderful, wonderful show. It's got sort of a dark and comedic taste to it. So the way that Delia puts it in her article is, for once, angry women are in fashion, and television is no exception. On shows like Jessica Jones and the short-lived Sweet Vicious and Good Girls Revolt, we got to see women take on perpetrators of sexual violence head-on. The women characters on You're the Worst, Good Behavior, and Unreal make decisions that are terrible and selfish, but that would be completely unremarkable if made by a man. So Killing Eve builds on that momentum with a trio of women who are angry, unlikable, and ambitious. But above all, they're hyper-competent and completely unapologetic. And that may sound like sort of a man-hating premise, and it's not, I promise you. <laughs> it's just a very strong way of giving this uh, female perspective some power behind it and some actual meaning besides just a badass lady kicking butt. You know, it's not just about that all the time. And it's funny, I just read Delia's. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
in-depth review of the latest episode of The 100, and Octavia has developed into that exact type of character that she's describing here. Right, and Delia really has her finger on the pulse of this type of thing, too, so it's great. Killing Eve, if you're not familiar with it, follows an assassin for a higher codenamed Villanelle, played by Jodie Comer, who is a complete psychopath, but who for some reason wants others to see her as normal. At least that's my impression. Including the MI6 agent who's pursuing her, Eve Pilastri, played by Sandra Oh, wonderfully played by Sandra Oh, a former desk jockey who is recruited for an off-books operation because of her fascination with female assassins. And the third woman that Delia is referring to is no doubt Carolyn Martins, played by Fiona Shaw, who sees Eve's hidden talents and recruits her for her task force. And there's this overall sense of women's tacit approval of violence toward men, where actually specifically a certain type of man, exemplified by a woman in the second episode, and I love this scene. She's looking out the window of the city bus, and you think because she sees up in the window a man covered in blood begging for help as he's being killed by Villanelle in the window of a nearby office building, Instead of calling the police, she picks up her phone and calls her mother to see if she needs anything from the shop. (laughs) It's a very banal scene that just kind of speaks to her disdain for the situation. And even Eve, at first, feels like Villanelle deserves to not be caught, given her sheer skill in avoiding law enforcement that continually overlooks her due to a mixture of incompetence, misogyny, they just don't feel like she's important enough, and we eventually learn treason is in the mix as well so it's a really great show from that perspective as well and there are other examples of this idea that Delia is bringing up that would be too spoilery to mention here but thematically killing eve does a great job of allowing women to be openly disdainful in a way that wouldn't have made anyone blink had the characters been men but showrunner phoebe waller bridge of fleabag fame is able to make it empowering instead of man-hating and that is no easy task. So I applaud the perspective that this show brings. I've never seen it in another TV show before. So if you want to read more about these perspectives, find Delia Harrington's article on Killing Eve. Specifically, Killing Eve is the perfect show for the cultural moment. Now, Dave, our bonus item, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast here, is a really interesting one. It's a little bit off our beaten path because it's nonfiction. (laughs) Now, Alejandro Rojas, who is the Den of Geek contributor that we'll be talking to, is a science writer who is known for his involvement with Open Minds at openminds.tv, where he's an editor, a writer, a radio host for this group that takes a scientific look at UFO phenomena. And so he attended the 3M Science Advocacy Conference to interview Scott Kelly and, and attend all the other panels that were there. But Scott Kelly famously has spent over 520 days in space during four different missions. And in one mission alone, he spent 340 consecutive days on the International Space Station, the longest time any U.S. astronaut has spent in space on a single mission. Now, like many aviators and astronauts, Kelly had a unique perspective on the idea of aliens and UFOs. And Alejandro has a series of articles on Den of Geek from this interview including not only the discussion we're about to share about UFOs, but also more about the effects that extended stays in space have had on Kelly's DNA and his physical body. So there's more to come if you are interested in following Alejandro Rojas's coverage. You'll be able to look for all kinds of different articles on Den of Geek. But here, let's take a listen to my discussion with Alejandro Rojas about his interview with Scott Kelly, which includes some audio clips 
from the conference. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Alejandro Rojas, to talk about your interview with Scott Kelly. It's a lot of uh, interesting stuff in that interview you shared with us. Yeah, my pleasure. And we've got actually more interesting stuff from that interview that will be coming to Den of Geek uh, soon. Oh, great. That's that's very exciting. Now, describe this 3M science advocacy event where you interviewed Scott Kelly. What was he doing there and, and what was your goal in interviewing him? Yeah, this was actually kind of eye-opening for me. Um, and, and 3M really has a strong dedication to science, and uh, which is kind of cool. You know, I've worked in the corporate world, and a lot of times marketing is just rhetoric, you know, not necessarily yeah. standing behind certain things, especially when uncomfortable situations like, like politics or, or other type of things get involved. But 3M really has a strong commitment to science. And certainly uh, a lot of the scientists that we're speaking are frustrated in today's world where science isn't taken as seriously as it should be. And, and empirical facts are kind of being doubted uh, or called fake news or, or that there's agenda behind science. But scientists, you know, they let the math, the science speak for itself. So it's good because it shows, you know, what people need to do to kind of help educate the public about what science really is. And that's what uh, Scott Kelly was there for. He was kind of representing as kind of a public figure who's, of course, worked with science. And then also, at least when it came to my goals and in interviewing him, just a couple interesting things about the state of space, because I do write about space quite a bit. And his nearly year-long trip, for example, the physical effects it had on him. And now that we have SpaceX talking about going to Mars soon, is that even viable? Is that possible given these physical effects that he had? So that was one of the lines of questionings that I went down, and that'll be a story coming out soon. But the other thing I asked about is, uh, you know, the Department of Defense Recently, uh, the New York Times put out a story in December that they have indeed been investigating UFOs for years. And I've been in contact with the former head of that project a bit, and he thinks there's a real mystery there. So it's always interesting, I think, to ask people about you know, what they think of that sort of thing. And, and sometimes the answers are surprising. I have talked to astronauts who do believe they've seen something unusual. So uh, I definitely wanted to ask Scott Kelly his take on that. Well, let's go ahead and take a listen to what he said regarding UFOs and what he believes might be explaining some of the things that he and other pilots see out there in space. Do you think that is a viable area of study, given your experience as a pilot? Um... You know, flying airplanes and flying in space, you know, I've had experiences where if I let my imagination run wild a little bit, I could say, wow, that's an alien spaceship. Even on the space station, I mean, I would often see, like, something and I would be like, well, that's not behaving like a star or a satellite. And then you wait a little longer and it clears the atmosphere like it's, you know, kind of an optical illusion. Mm -hmm. And flying in airplanes, especially over the water at night, so many opportunities for things that don't really seem like they appear because they're optical illusions. I personally don't think that alien spacecraft visit the Earth. I don't have any evidence of that, but I personally don't think that for a few reasons. One, the distances are pretty 
significant. Mm-hmm. And if they did visit, why did they sort of stop as soon as everyone got a cell phone in their pocket? You'd think there'd be pictures of selfies with aliens now. They used to come like a lot in the 50s and 60s. nobody had phones. Yeah, no one had phones, so you didn't get these good pictures. Right. They can stream anything so, on YouTube. You know, I personally don't believe I w- and I'm not saying with 100% certainty, mm-hmm. but you know, 99.99% that I don't think we mm-hmm. have visitors. Yeah, because I think some of what they're looking at, too, and maybe you'll have some insight into this, is, well, because you flew on some of the most advanced aircraft that we have, that perhaps... Some of these are advanced aircraft from other nations. Do you think that's... Or possible? our own. Or our own. Yeah. All right. So that was a very interesting uh, way to end it there. He kind of just gave you a very short answer <laughs> with regard to what secret military projects might be responsible for some people's view of UFOs. Uh, did you get the sense that he didn't really want to go any farther than that? <laughs> Definitely. He gave me a funny look. He He... He's a character. He's hilarious. I mean, the 3M discussion that he did is is on their Periscope, so people should check that out because he is just very entertaining, educational. But yeah, he gave a funny look, almost like he did know something more, which would make sense. I mean, he was a Navy jet pilot, but definitely I, I do not condone anybody sharing any secrets. I think it's important that, you know, there are things that are kept secret, and, and especially when it comes to advanced technology. And it is something that I think gets overlooked. And I would even argue, and there has been discussion in the past, how this whole idea about UFOs and aliens has kind of helped with the secrecy when it comes to advanced projects. For instance, the U-2, a lot of the people who worked at Area 51 on the U-2 talked about how you know, they didn't mind when people were saying, hey, look, that's a UFO. Those are aliens when actually, you know, it was one of their spy planes. So there are things up there that are flying around that are, are very human, even if uh, they perform in, in ways that we do not understand. Now, do you think Scott's answers to questions about alien life and UFOs was typical of those in his profession? It is. It is very typical. And, you know, I've interviewed a lot of NASA guys and astronauts, and they're typically very focused on their mission, which is great. They're very, very focused on the science and the math and what they're doing at that time. Even when they talk about the awe of space, when they're doing spacewalks, you know, the important part for them is to stay focused on what their mission is before they take a moment to kind of enjoy the scenery, for instance. So they don't think about these topics often. And, you know, the public does, though, and the public does sometimes go a little wild with conspiracy theories or or when someone claims, oh, look at this uh, video from NASA, it's got to be aliens. And, uh, <laughs> and that's a little bit frustrating for them because they're like, well, first of all, if it was aliens, that'd be great because we're looking for aliens. You know, we're looking for life out there. Second of all, we would tell you, you know, it's not like we're here to keep secrets. We're here to complete a task and conduct some real science here. So it, it is typical. It is typical that, yeah, you know, they say there's probably life out there. We haven't found it yet. What's interesting, though, is Scott Kelly said there have been times that where I've seen things that I thought I, I couldn't explain. But later I did discover what they were. But there are sometimes, and I found them to be very honest when they'll say, you know, 
I've seen something where I didn't know what it was. I don't know that it was aliens. It could have been this or that. But yeah, sure, I've seen something that I haven't been able to explain before. And uh, I find them to be very honest. So it's fun to ask that question, even if it can create a bit of a, a slight uncomfortable moment, especially if people are around. You can hear kind of the nervous laughter with some of the people that were <laughs> yeah. uh, there in the group. But uh you never know what you're going to get. Sometimes you get like, you know, oh, yeah, I saw something really crazy. Let me tell you all about it. And, of course, that's something that as a journalist, you know, that that's gold. Now, of course, your article of, on Den of Geek that encapsulates this interview has over 111 comments as the, as we're recording this. <laughs> wow. So, and it's still climbing. So do you think most people reading the interview are looking for some sort of confirmation from Someone like Scott Kelly, because, of course, they could run the gamut from conspiracy theorists to genuine scientists and everywhere in between. Mm -hmm. I love the topic, and uh, I've interviewed and written about it quite a bit, even beyond what, you know, colleagues might feel is, is, is wise. But <laughs> I, I don't like to shy away because I think it's fascinating. Yeah. And comments, you know, the public is interested, and there are different groups, and I guess that's what I'm getting at is there – are those genuinely interested? There are the hardened skeptics, and then there's a hardened believer. So uh, just like with politics or anything else, there's a lot of people who come to this with a set worldview where they're like, oh, yeah, this is proof that NASA's lying. Scott Kelly's lying to us because on mission so-and-so, you know, I saw a video on YouTube and he should have known about that. Or, you know, exactly. See Scott Kelly confirming there's nothing to any of this. But then there's the genuinely curious who are like, hmm, you know, Scott Kelly makes some really great points. But still, you know, we do have this situation where at least some people who have been uh, credibly investigated this field, you know, feel there's some there's a genuine mystery here. So you kind of run the gamut of, of different interests and beliefs. And, and that's what's fun. And right now is a really fun and interesting time because now that we know the DOD uh, had taken this seriously and uh, that indeed, a according to Lou Elizondo, who is a former head of this project, that there are people currently investigating this and they do feel they have found cases where they weren't able to identify what they say is an advanced technology. Of course, they could have it wrong. And uh, that has happened before where governments have said, oh, my gosh, look, we found something weird. And it turned out not to be so weird. But it's an exciting topic. It's something exciting to look into. And I think a lot of the public feel like it's a little bit more of a credible area to look into because it's not necessarily always looked at in a credible manner. There is certainly a lot of assumption and speculation that is out there. You know, television shows that claim Neptune is an alien and all of this weird stuff. So it's fun to kind of explore some of the more credible stuff. Well, that's for sure. And I think our readers who explore science fiction in television and movies, they like to think that these things are possible. Right. And so anytime we can bring in someone with <laughs> that has actual life experience, it's, it's always good. Yeah. Thanks very much for talking to us today about um, Scott Kelly and your interview with him. What can you tease about what's coming up? So, yeah, a couple other interesting things. Of course, I talked earlier about those physical effects. I mean, um, what physically happened to Scott Kelly, I think, was fascinating, especially in relation to people like SpaceX saying that we're going to be going to Mars soon. And, of course, those missions take something like 200 days to get there. So there's a big effect. There's a lot that has to be worked out. Um, I mean, Scott Kelly's mission was only a few years ago, so we're still crunching that data uh, of what physical effects there are. And I don't 
think many have thought about, well, how do we counter those if we're going to go on these long missions? So some of that, but also more about this kind of opening up of the question of UFOs. So, for example, I think it's this week the story will be posted about politicians who have brought up the subject themselves and discussed it in the Congress. So some really interesting conversations that are going on, and it's fascinating to to see, you know, politicians especially taking UFOs seriously. And and I think it's a story that's just going to continue to grow. Well, we can't wait to see what you come up with uh, in the future on Den of Geek. And thanks so much for sharing your experience with us. Thank you for having me. So, Dave, that was really cool. I mean, I think Alejandro has a real talent for asking questions that come across very scientific in approach rather than kind of a conspiracy nut type of <laughs> approach to it. Well, yeah, and you mentioned nonfiction, and, and certainly we spend most of our time talking about genre TV shows. But when you think back to Nat Geo's Mars, which is really a, a pretty healthy mix of the nonfiction with the fiction uh, there's room for it here and, and i think you know genre fans especially hardcore sci-fi fans are gonna love this oh for sure and didn't that show actually feature some footage of scott kelly <laughs> i believe it did yeah. it's been a while since we saw it yeah so that that's a good uh good point and like I said, if you want to read more about Alejandro Rojas's discussion with Scott Kelly, he was very forthcoming on a lot of topics. So uh, you can check that out on denofgeek.com. Just search for Alejandro Rojas. Well, I hope you enjoyed this edition of the Den of Geek podcast, but that's going to be it for this installment. Join us again in two weeks for the June 2018 early edition of G News, when we'll hash out the latest from denofgeek.com and share some more behind-the-scenes content from your favorite television shows, movies, and more. And if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and more. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.